Being Australian, I've always envied those celebrating Christmas in the Northern Hemisphere. Cold, snowy weather, gathered around the fireplace and drinking eggnog. Christmas in the small community of Norfolk, England, it would have been a special time. Family spending quality time together, excitement in the air, full of happiness and love. But for some, Christmas can bring up heart-wrenching incidents. Just because it is time to eat, drink and be merry, it doesn't mean that everyone is immune to tragedy. Unfortunately for the young family, Christmas 1992 would mean losing their beloved Joanna in the most brutal and horrific way possible. And almost 30 years later, they still don't know how and why Joanna's life was ended at only 14 years old. Their lives never the same again. This is Joanna's story. Joanna Claire Young was born in 1978 and brought up in Norfolk, England to parents Carol and Robert Young. Joanna would be the couple's middle child with an older sister Emma and younger brother Daniel. In 1992, 14-year-old Joanna was attending Wayland High School, where she was considered to be popular and clever. Her father Robert later describing the teen as being full of fun and always up to tricks, playing pranks on her loved ones before falling into a fit of giggles. She loved music and dancing. Robert remembered always chastising her for playing her music too loud. She was just your typical happy teenager who made friends wherever she went. The family living in a small, close-knit community of Watton in Norfolk, England. The evening of Wednesday, December 23, 1992 was a cold and foggy night. Joanna's younger brother Daniel had been acting up, complaining that his computer game was not working as it should be. Joanna, being your normal 14-year-old, was tired of his antics and she begged her parents to allow her to visit her boyfriend of six months, 17-year-old Ryan Furman. Robert and Carol agreed as long as she wasn't out too late. She had work the next morning. So, at 7.30, Joanna zipped up her purple anorak and left the Merton Road home, headed towards the high street centre of town. Little did Robert and Carol know that Ryan had ended their relationship only days before, and there was no way they could know that they would never see their beloved Joanna alive again. Despite the dreary weather and the time of year it was, Joanna would be seen by several people at this point. Sometime around 8.30, Joanna was seen by a friend in the town centre, near the Mr Chippy takeout shop. There were also unconfirmed sightings of Joanna or someone who looked like Joanna around the same time, but we will get into that a little later. When Joanna hadn't returned by her parents' bedtime, Carol and Robert didn't think too much of it. Joanna was independent and trustworthy and responsible, and she had a lot of freedom. Freedom I couldn't fathom allowing my 13-year-old son in this 2022 world. But in 1992, in a small community, it was a completely different time. The weather had deteriorated more, and they assumed that she may have still been at Ryan's waiting it out, or maybe even with another friend. Carol and Robert went to bed knowing they would see their daughter in the morning. (laughs) 
6am, Christmas Eve 1992. Robert was awoken by Joanna's radio alarm. Joanna had a part-time job delivering newspapers in the neighbourhood and she needed to be at the news agency to pick up her allocation by 7am. He tried to go back to sleep, but Joanna didn't turn the alarm off. Slightly annoyed, Robert went into her room to rouse on her for waking him up on his day off. But her bed hadn't been slept in, and her newspaper bag was still hanging on her bedroom door. It was immediately obvious that Joanna had not come home the night before. This was not like Joanna. But Carol convinced her husband that perhaps Joanna didn't want to walk home in the dark and the cold. She must have stayed with a friend and then went straight to work from there. But then a phone call at 7am made their blood run cold. Joanna had not shown for work. No one had seen her. Robert and Carol got into their car and they searched the town and surrounding countryside looking for any sign of their missing daughter, hoping they would see her running late for work. Quote, You don't want to believe it and you tell yourself it'll be okay, but there's a real pain in the pit of your stomach. As a parent, you just know it's not right. Unquote. With a heavy heart, Robert reported Joanna missing to Watton Police. Due to the unexplained nature of her disappearance, Joanna's photo was front-page news on all the local newspapers. The Youngs faced the very real possibility of spending Christmas without their Joanna. They knew in their heart of hearts that something horrible had happened to the 14-year-old. She had never run away before, never stayed out without making contact to let them know where she was and when she would be home. This was extremely out of character. They knew something or someone was preventing her from coming home. Christmas 1992 would be a sombre day for the family. And then the next day, Boxing Day, the young family's worst nightmare would become their reality. On the afternoon of December 26, 1992, a local man was walking his dog in Griston Road, Wotton, only one mile from the young family home. Here he found a pair of black matchstick kickers, covered in mud neatly placed side by side on the verge of an unmade lane in Gilman's Drift. The dog walker, of course, had heard about the missing girl, and this concerned him enough to report his finding to police. Police immediately descended on the area and a search commenced. Further down the lane, known to the locals as Lover's Lane, through a five-bar gate inaccessible to vehicles, in an old clay pit full of recent rainwater and debris, here they found 14-year-old Joanna Young, dead, floating face down and naked from below the waist. Her underwear found discarded on the ground next to the pit, her blue jeans nowhere to be found. The medical examiner would write in her report that Joanna's body was covered in scratches. Her skull was fractured. Although, interestingly, the medical examiner stated that Joanna's skull was unusually thin and frail, and the fracture would have occurred without much force. In her opinion, the fracture was most likely caused by her falling rather than being struck on the head with something. The official cause of death, though, was drowning. Joanna was unconscious but still alive when she was dragged into the old clay pit and dumped face first, left to drown. Despite her being naked from the waist down, the medical examiner could not find any evidence of sexual assault, although this has been reported otherwise in several contemporary news articles. 
But even in these reports, police also state the crime was not sexually motivated. So read of that what you will. Possibly this alludes to consensual sex. I'm not sure. Police then had what must be one of the hardest jobs in the world, telling the family of a missing person their loved one was found dead. Joanna's father, Robert, a normally mild-mannered man, he was full of anger, demanding answers. What were the police doing to find who was responsible? Joanna's mother, Cara, was inconsolable, full of guilt for allowing her daughter to go out after dark and then going to bed without knowing where she was. They were given the number of the victim support network, but Carol and Robert would never call them, instead leaning on family and friends and those who knew and loved Joanna the most. From the onset, this would prove a difficult case for investigators. The long hours and icy water destroyed whatever evidence there was. The medical examiner could not even determine a time of death. And given the weather, people were at home spending time with their families for Christmas, so not many people were out and about that night, meaning witnesses were almost non-existent. Forensic analysis of the scene indicated that possibly two people were involved in the murder, that the drag marks on Joanna's back matched drag marks next to the pit where she was found. And what it was theorised this meant, she was possibly dragged in a U-shape, with one person holding her top half, and another holding her feet. Police now had to look for not one, but two potential suspects. Joanna's ex-boyfriend Ryan was the first person police considered. Joanna was allegedly headed to his house that night. Or was she? The pair had broken up. Although Carol and Robert would tell police their daughter was very taken with the older teen. She would even neglect her responsibilities to meet him after he finished work. Maybe she went to his home that night to talk to him, to convince him he made a mistake and to win him back. Ryan's parents' home stood at the top of Gilman's Drift, so he would have known the area well. Police would question him twice for almost 10 hours. They checked his body completely for any signs of scratches. They took plaster casts of his shoes to see if they were a match to that in the mud at the crime scene, but they weren't. Ryan was also able to provide a solid alibi for the night Joanna went missing. Friends confirmed he was with them, playing snooker until the early morning hours. It was clear that Ryan knew nothing about Joanna's disappearance and murder. Desperate, police would target any man living in the Watton community. They thought that possibly the murderer may be a fellow classmate, someone who had a crush on the pretty teen and she had rejected his advances. Police would interview all male students at Wayland High School in the days after Joanna was found. The later coronial report was heavily critical of the initial police investigation, that if the police had treated the case as a potential accident from the start, it may have encouraged more people to come forward. Because there was every chance Joanna may have been killed accidentally, and that any charge might have been manslaughter, quote, what may have started as a youthful prank finished up in tragedy, unquote. And this was mostly based on the medical examiner's belief her skull fracture occurred by falling rather than being struck. But instead, police came in heavy-handed, making locals suspicious and uneasy towards one another. Police at the time declaring, quote, 
The killer undoubtedly had been heavily mudstained and may have suffered scratches from brambles or undergrowth. I ask families who have had their doubts on anyone close to them to inform us immediately. Unquote. Police would return to Gilman's Drift several times to search for any evidence at all left behind by Joanna's killer or killers, searching inch by inch, but nothing was found. Police had no motive, no leads, and no obvious suspects. Police would make only one arrest at this stage, a local teen, but this boy refused to cooperate in questioning. He had allegedly disappeared himself for a few days after Christmas, and when he returned, he had scratches all over his face. But he would be later released without charge due to the evidence just not being there against him. Mysteriously, despite numerous thorough searches, 10 days after Joanna was discovered, on January 19, 1993, Joanna's jeans turned up on a hedge in Gilman's Drift. They were obviously placed after the searches were completed, meaning her killer or killers returned to the scene of the crime. But why? Why come back at this point to place the jeans in plain sight? Regardless, no further clues were to be found. Soon after Joanna was found, a cryptic letter was sent to the Eastern Daily Press. It was a drawing showing stick figures of a girl, a youth and a motorcycle. The message reading, quote, Griston Watton, 23rd December, 9pm. Unquote. Now, this would fit several witness sightings, placing a young man leaning against a motorcycle, seemingly waiting for someone, at the junction of Griston Road and Norwich Road, not far from where Joanna's body would later be found, and that a woman was seen approaching him around nine that night. Could Joanna have gone riding with this man and fallen off the bike? Then in a panic, thinking she was dead and trying to protect himself, he went to hide her body in the pit, because we know she was still alive at that point and she drowned. It is very possible her killer didn't know she was alive when she went in the pit. And I think this would be a very possible theory, if it wasn't for Joanna's jeans and underwear being removed. At the end of the day, though, we don't know if the letter is related, or if it is, what it all really means. Personally, I think it is related. The date and time match, so it would have been one hell of a coincidence otherwise. Possibly a witness who saw something happen that night. The police made several public appeals for the letter writer to come forward, but no one ever did, and it remains a mystery to this day. In the last interview Carol Young did with the Mirror newspaper, to bring attention to her daughter's unsolved murder on its 21st anniversary in December 2013. She pled for her daughter's killer to come forward. Quote, How can they keep quiet? I just don't know how you can. Whoever it is probably has children of their own now. How would they feel? We need closure and we need justice for our daughter. We don't want any other parents to have to go through the hell we experienced. Unquote. May 2014. The case was reopened for the 21st anniversary of the unsolved murder, and this attracted widespread interest. A spokesperson for the Norfolk Police and its major investigation team received its largest number of calls reporting tips from that cold winter night. To Detective Inspector Marie James of Norfolk and Suffolk Major Investigations Team, quote, 
We've always said that the answer to this case lies in the information that only local residents can provide us. Unquote. But with this new appeal saw two more people arrested, including one man who was seen, quote, dishevelled and slightly distressed, unquote, close to where Joanna's body was found. Seriously, how many suspicious-looking men were just hanging around this area that night? But the second man was seen in a hooded top late in December 1992, hitchhiking. But again, there was insufficient information to prove any one person was involved. The unfinished podcast featured Joanna Young's murder on an episode, and because of this, a new witness came forward with information on the night she went missing. This witness was 27 years old at the time, and he knew the Young family, so he knew what Joanna looked like. But he would tell the unfinished podcast that he saw a man in a silver van arguing with a young woman on the night that Joanna went missing. And it was at the same junction the youth with the motorcycle was seen the junction of Griston Road and Norwich Road. This man told the podcast he was driving home at around 9.30 when he passed the junction and saw a young woman standing by the side of the van. He thought it was a Luton van. The man was still sitting in the van, but the pair were gesturing to each other and speaking with raised voices. As I said, he knew the young family and Joanna, and he didn't think the young woman he saw was Joanna, but he reported it at the time anyway. He said that he also thought he knew who owned the silver van and he gave this name to police. The witness would be questioned by police twice and he had a DNA sample taken. This would also mark the last appeal from police for information for the 25th anniversary of the unsolved murder in December of 2017. Police would again appeal for information, but this time it was not successful. Said Robert, quote, It's disappointing because you always hope something will come. Unquote. Carol and Robert spent their lives waiting for answers and trying to provide their children and now grandchildren with as normal lives as possible. Quote, We try to carry on for the sake of our children, and as a family we just continue to the best we can. But Joanna was in our thoughts all the time. You can put it at the back of your mind. You get through the days, then months, then years. But it's always with you. Unquote. Carol and Robert Young still live in the Watton area to this day, a community that has grieved without answers for almost 30 years. Unfortunately, possibly, they may have lived there with their daughter's killer for many of these years. Maybe those who know what happened still remain in the area to this day. This is still the belief of Carol and Robert Young, who firmly believe that Joanna knew the person who killed her. The police also suspect this may be the case. Said Detective Inspector Marie James, quote, I'm convinced that someone out there knows what happened to Joanna, and I'm convinced that the answer lies within the community of Watton. I would urge these people to please search their consciences, to please come forward and provide answers for the family, unquote. If you have any information regarding the murder of Joanna Young, please contact Crime Stoppers on 0800-555-111. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, 
please search Stolen Lives on Facebook. Like the page so you don't miss an episode and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu.